our oaths bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family uh, to do this thing in the unity of the faith, that is, to be knit together with those by means of the word, uh, with those that are on the other side of the planet, even, even from different times. Uh, we know that that is the power of the word, as Hebrews 4.12 speaks to. Uh, we're so grateful and thankful for this time on earth, after salvation, to learn and to spread your good news. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this is a special um, regarding the India mission lessons. Uh, and this was the one that was taught in the afternoon on Monday, May 15th in India called the pastor's example. If you recall, the first one was leading a congregation. So just a friendly reminder as to why the Spirit has me teaching you these lessons. Again, it is the transcendent word. The word of God is timeless and boundless. We of particular circumstances are able to relate to others regardless of when or where they live or have lived. So therefore, the word unifies our hearts with our Lord's and then others. And that's one of the key reasons why he has me teaching these lessons to you, the same ones that I taught in India a week or so ago. It's because the Word of God is timeless and boundless, and it's able to knit us all together. For the full effect, I would suggest the following. To whatever degree you're able to do this thing, transport yourselves, pretend you're there, pretend you were there with them. Uh, imagine yourselves being in those seats as I taught so as I teach these lessons, imagine yourselves being in one of the seats in India. Uh, make yourself, quote, present and consider how each lesson was received by grace through faith. And then consider the fellowship you would have experienced during that time. Um, and again, since the word is timeless and boundless, it's a possibility for you to do that right now as I'm teaching. Imagine yourself in those seats with all those individuals. And just as, you know, for the visual learners out there, <clears throat> here's what the, the conference looked like. This was before it was full, but this is what it looked like from the, from the uh, stage itself. And this should give you some kind of visual of your surroundings. Uh, with that said, again, on Thursday of last week, I gave you the lesson I taught to the pastors at the conference in India titled Leading a uh, Congregation. And that was the morning session. Tonight's lesson is titled The Pastor's Example, which was the one I taught in the afternoon session and also at the remote village on Thursday with uh, Pastor Kumar Vijay and the 12 pastors he had in his conference. So we had basically a mini conference that we showed up with or we showed up to uh, in the afternoon on Thursday. And I taught this lesson to that group as well. So it was 12 or 13 pastors there, very eager. Um, to hear the Word of God, very grateful as well. So you're hearing a lesson that was taught to not just one organization, but another sort of uh, conference uh, in India, about an hour and a half away. The key points the Holy Spirit made during the first session uh, are as follows. 
all authority. This is from Thursday's lesson, Leading a Congregation. This means that any man who exercises authority or oversight over a congregation of sheep has been delegated that authority from the great shepherd himself, Jesus Christ. This also means that any exercise of authority must be consistent with the will of Jesus. Jesus Christ himself said, all authority has been granted me. And that means anyone that has that delegated authority has just that, his authority, to exercise that authority over a congregation. Uh, and that really just boils down to one thing. Do you or do you not think that a particular individual has this spiritual gift? That's really what it boils down to. If you're convinced of that reality, then, the, then you have to follow that individual's authority. If you're not convinced of that individual, then don't follow them and leave them. But do not, um, do not do that or make that mistake of doing halvesies, where you follow authority when you like it, and then you don't follow authority when you don't like it. Uh, that's not authority orientation at all. That's playing games. And so... If you believe, say, case in point, that I'm an authority delegated by Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, then it's your duty as sheep to follow my authority. So the will of Jesus is found in the Word of God, the Holy Bible, and is brought into remembrance through the ministry of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, up here on the board. <clears throat> this is part of the review. Jesus Christ is the Word. The Holy Bible is the very mind of Christ, the Word of God, the Son Himself, John 1.14. We must treat the Word as we would treat Jesus Christ in the flesh, as the ultimate authority in our lives. Pastors derive all leadership authority from the Word. And so this puts an, a big onus on the pastor themselves um, to really be diligent in making sure that the things that they're teaching are scripturally based, that the things that they teach are based on scripture. And I've said this to you many, many times, uh, don't just take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Seek it out. Because the only way you're going to get your own wisdom on anything is that you see it in the word of God for yourself. I'm just a tour guide and I'm not infallible. It means that sometimes I'll say, you know, a instead of the, or it instead of them, or something like that. And, you know, if you're just hanging on my every word, you're going to lose something in translation. It's really important that you read your Bibles all the time, that you're in the Scripture yourself, that you allow this spiritual gift to guide you. But at the end of the day, it's really important, it's critical, that you derive your own wisdom from the Word itself, because that is the ultimate authority. So... The Bible cautions us to be aware of the presence of false pastors. Now, a false pastor will deny all these things. A false pastor will use other things uh, that are not biblically uh, founded. And so we have what we might call self-appointed pastors. And I, got, I shared this with you on Thursday. I believe I was probably speaking to a few of them in maybe both conferences that I taught at. Um, but there are always an abundance, it seems, of self-appointed pastors. And the fact is that these aren't really pastors, only counterfeits. Anybody can call themselves a pastor, last time I checked, or, you know, a minister or, you know, a priest or whatever the heck they're calling themselves. Um, that's not important. 
what's important is that God assigns spiritual gifts and that self-appointed pastors are counterfeits. We do not assign spiritual gifts to ourselves. Rather, we are appointed by God. That also means that a person could fool a whole group of people and be ordained even by a group of people and still not be a pastor. Do you understand? Because that's still man. So think about that. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Again, these aren't actually real pastors. These self-appointed pastors are only counterfeits. Why? Because we don't assign ourselves spiritual gifts. It's that simple. So how does a believer know if they actually have the spiritual gift of pastor, teacher, slash shepherd? Well, there are keys to realizing these things. The key to becoming a pastor is simple. God chooses you. If he chooses you, he appoints you. And if he appoints you, he provides you with all the necessary abilities by grace to perform your duties, <coughs> excuse me, as unto the Lord. These duties will reflect the heart of Christ toward his own sheep. That's how you know. I mean, God chooses you. It's that simple. This means that all pastors are servants of the word. In order to serve honorably under the great shepherd, an under-shepherd must serve the word. He must both submit to its authority and teach from that authority as the bedrock of his ministry. Above all, pastors must be humble servants. I can share this with you as a pastor, um, that my greatest fear is to um, stray from Scripture. Honest to goodness, that is my absolute greatest fear as a pastor, that somehow I'm going to stray from Scripture, um, that I'm going to you know, teach something that's not 100% accurate or something like that. That's my greatest fear which is why I encourage you to go yourself to Scripture. Um, but I can tell you this, I'm humble. That I can tell you, that at, the very best thing I've got going for me is my humility. But I'll at least, uh, my intention, my absolute intention is to always be within the umbrella of the Word, never to stray from the truth. The final guidance we received from the Word in our first session was up here on the board. Again, remember the context. I was at a pastor's conference, and so I was challenging. The Spirit had me challenge these individuals. So you think you're a pastor. And I could already sense, again, at this point, that some might not have been, even though they were sitting there under the premise that they were. The greatest way to lead is to first learn how to follow. In fact, our great example, Jesus Christ, was subservient to his Father's plan. If you think you may have this gift of spiritual, the spiritual gift of pastor, teacher, then you submit yourself to the word. Commit yourself with the same fervency of those who have preceded you, starting with Jesus. That's how you can get started, at least. I would imagine that, um, as we'll discuss a little bit later, there have been people that thought they had one spiritual gift, and then they realized they didn't. I'm thinking of someone right now. They said, I think I have this gift, and... A few years later, they said, you know what, I don't have it. I think I have this, and now they're functioning tremendously in that gift, and vice versa. So I, I think that happens all the time. I think it's just a function of humanity, maybe the flesh, maybe our personal desires for this gift or that gift. Maybe, a, you know, it was funny because Tammy and I were talking about this last night. We were laughing our butts off. We said, you know, when I was a 19-year-old kid in the service acting like a complete bozo, the last thing I would have expected is God called me out as a pastor. Honestly, I did not want it. Even when I got called out, so to speak, I still didn't really want it, per se. And so who can say? That's my point. But 
you know, what if I just stuck with something I thought I was, you know, I'd be frustrating a lot of, of God's will, uh, and I wouldn't be standing here. And some of you, who knows what, where you'd be at. I'm not saying that he wouldn't have delivered someone else up, but you get the point. I know there's a lot of gratitude for the spiritual gift. Um, this is a good place to begin our study regarding the pastor's example. And let me start with a profound statement. Um, and this is really uh, a summary verse before we even get started. A shepherd's love. From a sheep's perspective, the pastor must be, above all, loving. Now, that doesn't always mean I'm going to come give you hugs and kisses on the cheek. As a matter of fact, you know otherwise by now. But from a sheep's perspective, the pastor must be above all loving. If I'm not that, then I've got nothing. If I can't bring love to the table, I've got nothing for you, honestly. I'm not going to serve you well. I'm not going um, to give you any faith to imitate. Uh, I'm not going to do anything well if I don't love you. So from your perspective, the pastor must be above all loving. He must exhibit the same love that Christ did and the same love that Christ instructed Peter to have for his sheep. Go to John 21.15. John 21.15. One of the first things you have to look at, I suppose, if I were to die tomorrow... um, My prayer for you is that you would always look at the shepherd's heart. Does this person love me more than he loves himself? That's the first litmus test. You don't even have to know that much about them, but do they love me? Are they going to serve me even more than they love themselves? Because that's scriptural, right? John 21.15 So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Then tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Then shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So you can see that this love um, for Christ overflows. That's that perisuo. Overflows towards others even. I mean, my love for Christ precedes my love for you. The reason that I'm, many times that I continue to press on, any shepherd worth their salt continues to press on is they never get beyond their love for Christ. They may (laughs) lose sight of their love for the sheep because the sheep are being ridiculous. But it never goes any further than Christ because eventually a true pastor looks up and sees the great shepherd and the great shepherd says, do you love me? Of course I do. Then tend my sheep. Okay, I'll get back out there for you. They're really testing me. I know. Just get back out there. Shepherd them. So John, who wrote this passage of Scripture, who would have been trained up the same way that Peter was, wrote about the following up here on the board. This is John's perspective, often called the Apostle of Love. And he would have been trained the same way as Peter. To love Jesus is to love his sheep. And 
maybe that's something you just jot down in your head or in your notes and think about. But to love Jesus is to love his sheep. You can't do one without the other, in other words. He says, these are my sheep. I love them. If you love me, you're going to love them. That's, that was what we just read, right, with that um, discourse with Peter. Go to 1 John 3.16. <clears throat> 1 John 3.16. So to love Jesus is to love his sheep. I suppose that's the start of your imitation of any pastor worth their salt that says imitate their faith. It really begins with that. Um, does this individual love Jesus? Do they love Jesus so much that they have foregone their own life? Because if they haven't done that, they're certainly not going to do it for me, the sheep, right? If, in other words, if they haven't laid down their life, if they're not so in love with Jesus Christ that they've given up their self-life, they're certainly not going to do it for me, the lesser, right? So to love Jesus is to love his sheep. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That one's a, that's quite a gotcha, isn't it? But with deed and truth, that means that love is active. Love, as I've taught, can't help but express itself. And that means deed and truth. A lot of people do this, right? There's a lot of um, even pastors out there that say, oh, I love you, I love you, and they never do anything. They say, I love you, love you, give me your money. I love you, I love you, give, give, me your, give me your approbation. I love you, I love you, give me something, because they're in it for them. Somehow, some way, it's always about them. And if you look close enough, you can always pick out false pastors. They always talk about themselves uh, in the context of receiving. So, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So that was the apostle of love where he continued. Go to 1 John 4.20 where he continues again with the same theme. <clears throat> 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now just stop right there. If someone says, I love God and then hates his brother, what are you supposed to think? He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother from whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In other words, will. If you look at the original, it actually implies that he will love his brother also. It's one of the litmus tests for even a, a, a saved individual. If you say you love God, we love because he first loved us, right? Um, then we're going to love our brothers as well. And it doesn't mean that gushy kind of love. It's not the romance love. It's not some kind of a, it's not even a, you know, what we would call a phileo or a Philadelphia type love always. It's a love. It's a love that is born of God. It's that simple. So this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should and will technically love his brother also. And it does not mean that sort of romantic or close love that so many people uh, misappropriate to God's love up here on the board. So back to a shepherd. 
from a sheep's perspective, again, the pastor must be, above all, loving. He must exhibit the same love that Christ did and the same love that Christ instructed Peter to have for his sheep. Therefore, <clears throat> the greatest example a pastor can give is to be loving. You want to imitate my faith? Then be loving. If you don't think I'm loving by now, and I mean, I'm looking around. Everybody has been here for years now, most of you. Um, if you don't think I'm a loving guy in the right way, then it's time for to you to move on. I'm, I'm being totally, I don't want you here. I'll say that to people who are listening. If, you know, if you've been with me for, for any length of time and you don't know that I love you by now, then something's wrong. Then you should go. You should look for someone who you are convinced actually does care about you the way Christ cares about you. Um, so the greatest example a pastor can ever give is to be loving. His love must be unconditional the way Jesus's was. A pastor's love must be an abiding love. In other words, it can't be, um, it can't be fickle. There's going to be times, like I intimated earlier, where um, you know, a, guy's, a shepherd's not necessarily going to want to express that love uh, because they've been angered or there's a certain indignation due to some sheep, God knows what. But the love never leaves. There's always an abiding love. A pastor's love must exemplify the love that Paul wrote about even. Go to 1 Corinthians 13.1. 1 Corinthians 13.1. So a pastor's love must exemplify what we see in 1 Corinthians 13.1. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, the point on the board the greatest example a pastor can ever give is to be loving. His love must be unconditional the way Jesus's was. A pastor's love must be an abiding love. Again, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So a pastor's love must be an abiding love. Therefore, his love must be exemplary. That's the whole point. His love must be exemplary. It's not perfect because he's not perfect. 
but it must be exemplary. It must be something that you can point to in your own life as an example when maybe you need that extra encouragement. Maybe you need to look to that person and say, you know what, if my pastor can pull this off, my pastor can do this thing. I'm not saying put him up on a pedestal at all, hardly. But the Bible says that he is to be exemplary. He is to be uh, in a position that you can imitate his faith. And as we'll see in uh, 1 Timothy, there's certain guidelines even to make sure that the person is of a certain maturity in the faith even. So anyways, a pastor's love must be exemplary. Go to John 15, 9. John 15, 9. <clears throat> John 15, verse 9. Again, the principle the, the Spirit is highlighting is that a pastor's love must be exemplary. John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. I've, I've taught you on that, abiding love, what that is. Like, you know, the whole 360 degrees, the, the envelope of love, the sphere of love I've often taught it as. Abide in my love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, com if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Therefore, up here in the board, honor shepherd's love. If love is the motivation, then keeping His commandments is the manifestation. Again, if love is the motivation, then keeping His commandments is the manifestation. In other words, you don't want to do anything else other than what's pleasing to Him. If He lays down a law, if He lays down a commandment, a person who loves wants to what? abide in that commandment, doesn't want to be displeasing to God, but rather wants to please Him in any way possible. So, of course, they're motivated. Of course, there's a manifestation of keeping His commandments because that's what's pleasing to Him. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to fail. It doesn't mean that pastors don't fail. It doesn't mean that sheep don't fail. It just means that your, your um, direction, if you would, your motivation, your intention is always to please Him. Now you're going to fail, and you're going to confess it, and then you're going to, but the, the overall impetus, because you are a new creature, is to please him. So if love is the motivation, then keeping his commandments is the manifestation. A pastor's greatest example is in keeping the law of God, and that is the law of love, remember, especially in the New Testament. That is to say that through love, a pastor abides in his commands including the ones specifically meant for pastors alone. The ones specifically meant for pastors alone. Let's continue in this passage, though. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, 
so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you. Do you see this? This I command you, that you love one another. You have, to, you, have to get that, you have to get your own spiritual arms around that. This I command you, that you love one another. Again, uh, the pastor is supposed to exemplify this kind of love, abide in it, even up here on the board. If, the love, if love is the motivation, then keeping his commandments is the manifestation. The pastor's greatest example is in keeping the law of God. That is to say that through love, a pastor abides in his commands including the one specifically meant for pastors alone. And I was thinking about this, of course, that like a secular shepherd, uh, the life of a Christian shepherd is a difficult calling. And I think that it's funny because um, shepherds and sheep alike try to shed elements of the calling. Uh, and that's very dangerous ground. We try to shed elements of the calling uh, when there's clearly stated scripture, uh, to the contrary, up here on the board, a shepherd's calling, a pastor must be prepared to live what can only be called from, you know, a normal perspective, an abnormal life. It really is an abnormal life. Um, the pastor must be prepared to live an abnormal life. His life is particularly spent on caring for his sheep just as an earthly shepherd spends an inordinate amount of time, supposed to be amount, amount of time doing the same. The Lord blesses his anointed under-shepherds with heart for spiritual welfare of others. So that's one of the things you have to think about, um, and it's one of the litmus tests that anyone who's aspiring to be a pastor has to realize, that if you don't have the, um, the perseverance or your love sort of crackles under pressure, or you stop abiding in this selfless sort of love that you're not comfortable ultimately with this abnormal life, then chances are you don't have the gift because he's not going to ask you to live a life that you can't live by grace. So that's the point. And that's, that's one of the things that I tried to impress on not just the, um, the folks on the other side of the planet, but anyone who's ever come up to me and said, you know, I think I might have this gift, or I'm thinking maybe I do. Uh, I say, well, you know, take some time with it and see what he has to say about those things. And I'll put you to a little test. And um, just frankly, historically, anytime I put anybody to the test, they've, they've walked away. They don't even pass the first couple of tests. And I say, then that person doesn't have the heart for it. Or they don't want it. They'll just say, no, I'll go somewhere else. I'll just... I don't know, go to some BS seminary or something like that and get some degree that forces me into the occupation. Um, anyways, all I know is what Scripture says, that the Lord will bless his anointed under-shepherds with a heart for the spiritual welfare of others. And this cannot, this is a point that I stopped at during the conference. I said, this cannot be understated. It just cannot be understated, the point on the board. Because there has to be a certain surety, if you would, a certainty uh, in the heart of the individual who's supposedly aspiring to being a shepherd or a pastor. Because you're not going to make it. And God will prove it to you. And if you, if you ignore him, he'll prove it to you with your, with your fruit even. He'll say, see, I put you to the test and you failed. Do you believe me now? Nope. 
and then it'll put you to another test, and you'll fail that too eventually. And the only people that can pass the test are the true anointed ones. And that's what I try to tell people, and that goes for any spiritual gift, not just pastor, but there's a certain criticality for obvious reasons with shepherds. So this cannot be understated. In fact, it must be a part of the, quote, testing an aspiring pastor must undergo before being promoted, before any other human being should even consider promoting someone. I, I intimated this to you earlier that there are lots, of, I believe there are lots of people who are, quote, ordained who aren't even pastors. Why? Because those people around them, just because they laid hands on someone doesn't mean that it was God's will. Go to 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 Timothy 3.1. So it's good because God gives us certain criteria to help us out to, um, you know, for sheep and shepherds, you know, quote, future shepherds alike to look in the mirror and say, are these things true? 1 Timothy 3.1 is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, that's a pastor, an elder, a bishop, if you would, uh, presbyteros, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. You notice that teaching is just one element. Do you see this, folks? I also think that there's a lot of people that are fantastic teachers that don't have the gift of shepherd. Because these are, there's a difference. There's poimano and then there's didaskalos, right? There's teaching and then there's actually shepherding. They're two different things. The pastor teacher happens to have the ability to teach, but it's a subset of a much greater calling. And I think people have uh, rushed to judgment, and I think people, some people would be a lot happier, and even some congregations would be a lot more blessed if these individuals just took the hint. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, that means you can't be um, an alcoholic, or pugnacious, but gentle. Pugnacious means, you know, uh, ready, you know, ready to, I always joke about dropping the hockey gloves, but you know what I'm saying, someone who's real, um, always willing to fight, someone that has no self-control, uh, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. That's a huge one, especially, it seems, based on the feedback I've received overseas. Um, overseas, that's a big problem because there's a lot of destitution. And, you know, let's face it, American Christians, in many ways, are charitable. And so what you end up having is people overseas that have no perceivable way to make money. They do, but they're not trusting God. They say, oh, I'll just make myself a pastor. I'll put up a website with a little PayPal button, show a bunch of pictures of some starving children that I don't even care about, but I'm trying to make money for myself, and get some donations from America. The ultimate thing to do is what I just did for all of you. Now I can actually say that Mercy and Grace Charity is a viable institution that I've been there, that I've met these people, that I'm convinced of their spiritual viability. Now, if you want to donate and help out, that's great. But there's a lot of people out there that are in it for the money, and they take advantage of people like you. 
who really do have a good heart. I mean, God will bless you for giving because after that it's, you know, but you get the point. So they're not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well. That's a huge one. That is a huge calling. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Because, look, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, verse 5, how will he take care of the church of God? Honest to goodness, if you can't manage two or three or four people, how are you going to manage 50 or 100 or 200, however big your church is? How are you gonna, or even five? How are you going to manage that? You can't manage your own household. And definitely not a new convert, verse 6. And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And so there's no real outs. Do you understand? Verse 5, verse 6, all those verses, there's really no wiggle room. You know, we shouldn't spend our time trying to justify away this or that. Well, they're such a nice guy. Or they're just so convincing. So what? That's not the point. I didn't write the Bible. Honest to goodness, I didn't write the Bible. This is what the Bible says, for example, you know, not a new convert. This is another big one. One of the greatest errors or great errors in the churches is the premature promotion of men to the office of pastor. This is a grave mistake as godly constitution must be wrought in a person over a significant period of time. That's what the Bible says. Do not promote a new convert. Why? They're not ready. they got to still get their bearings. I mean, it's a grave mistake. Because they don't even have the Constitution yet. And if you do that, I've done this in the past. I've promoted people uh, before they were ready. It uh, doesn't mean they weren't ready later, but before they were ready. And they didn't have the Constitution for the role, and they crumbled, and it became a problem. So I failed. I felt like I was a failure. So anybody who you know lays hands on somebody before a person is ready is um, at odds with God's will, frankly. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. Do you not see it? It's the word I'm reading. Look at verse 7. Now, this is the one I think that, that would, I think this would dismiss a lot of so-called pastors in this world. I mean, a, a lot of them. Look at this. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about unbelievers. People outside the church, including unbelievers. Really? Yeah, really. Why do you think? so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. What do you think the devil wants? Of course the devil wants a, a bunch of people that cannot meet God's divine standard for pastors because then he can throw stones at them and say, look, they're schmucks. They're in it for the money. They don't have the maturity. They're doing this. They're, they're drunks. They're whatever. They're bar fighting. They're, they're doing whatever. Do you understand? Satan's going to totally take advantage of that. That's not us being judgmental or, you know, ungracious or anything like that. That's the word of God. What would you like me to teach? You want me to just say, shh, let's skip verse 7. No, I don't have the right to do that, neither do you, frankly. You must have a good reputation. You want to try to wrangle with words about that? Well, it's good in this way, but you know. No. Does he or does he not have a good reputation with those outside the church? Yes or no? Because if it's no then what do you want me to conclude here? What should you conclude there? What would you like me to say? 
so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, let's not give the devil any more angles than he already has. Because he's going to use those angles to fracture the church. Whether you like that or not, or that's too practical, or that makes you uncomfortable or squirming in your seat, I don't care. That means you have a problem with the Word of God. So this is another area that seems to be overlooked as well. But nonetheless, it is Holy Scripture. That's what we always have to remember. Anytime we read, what have I taught you? You read clearly stated Scripture. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. It's clearly stated Scripture. That's the end of it. Holy Scripture, so it cannot by any means be overlooked or set aside up here on the board. For example, a good reputation, verse 7. Without a good reputation outside the church, that's even with unbelievers. A person gives Satan, the accuser, remember who Satan is, he's the accuser, substance to his accusations. In other words, suppose I go out tonight, I get drunk, I crash up my, my oh, my beloved Jeep, right? And then I, I'm mad, so I get out and I punch an old lady. Oh, 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 it's so offensive. Oh, it's just so offensive, right? I wouldn't do that, by the way. But... What's the church going to, what, what are the unbelievers on the outside who read about that in the newspaper going to say about North Christian Church? If the leader's a bum who's punching old ladies, what, what about all of you? When you go out with a business card that says North Christian Church and here's our website, what are they going to say? Is that that Pastor Ed guy who punched an old lady? Now all of your witness is gone. Do you understand? Do you think God needs that? You think God's going to try to use that garbage? No. That's the whole point. Don't give Satan any more angles. That's why the calling is very high. People don't like to hear that, though. Why? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a moment. I know, but we'll see if you can figure it out. Without a good reputation outside the church, and that includes with unbelievers, a person gives Satan, the accuser, substance to his accusations, a pastor's life must be consistent with his profession, lest he be the subject of scorn, ridicule, and contempt. Now, this doesn't mean that a pastor is called to sinless perfection. That's impossible. However, the Bible is very clear on such things. And one must ask themselves, you ready? This is the, this is the, um, I think this is the aha moment for most people on this particular passage even, this whole passage, okay? You read the passage, is it, I mean, if I read that to a five-year-old, would they not understand it? They'd say, okay, I get it. If they understand big words like pugnacious, you know, that kind of a thing. But they would pretty much get it. Maybe a 12-year-old, they'd say, okay, seems like a pretty high calling. I know, because you're right. So you have to ask yourself, if the Bible's that clear on such things, one must ask themselves, why? Just dwell on this. Why would anyone ever want to artificially lower the divine standard in the first place? That's a really good question. In other words, why would anyone want to contend with clearly stated scripture in the first place? 
Stop with the grayness. Stop with trying to prove this is you know, out of bounds and that's in bounds. Just stop for a moment. Ask yourself a very fundamental question. Why in the first place would anybody want to ever lower the standard? In other words, find loopholes. Why would that ever be anyone's honest um, motivation? When reading scripture about the qualifications of a pastor, what would be the impetus behind that activity? There's your answer. You're talking about someone's heart. If a man aspires to the office of pastor and he finds himself searching for loopholes in Holy Scripture, chances are he's trying to justify something ungodly. Some kind of a self-appointment to an office that God never meant for him to possess. And just stepping back for a moment, and we can say this about any spiritual gift, it's actually, just think about this. Let's, you know, the Spirit's trying to have a heart-to-heart with you right now, with all of you. First of all, what's the motivation for ever trying to find any loophole in Scripture? You have to ask, what's the, even if you think you found one. <laughs> that's not the point. He's asking you, what is the motivation behind that? And is, in, in that very sense, if that motivation exists, is that the right person in the first place? No. No, it's not. Because the right person isn't looking for loopholes. Do you understand? So just stepping back for a moment, again, we can say this about any spiritual gift, it's actually a very good thing. It's actually a very good thing when a person realizes that the spiritual gift that they are supposed, or they, that they supposedly have, turns out to not be something God wants for them. That's actually a really big favor that God has done. In other words, it's really good that he put in these things, especially for guys like pastors. It's a really good thing because it can take a lot of people out of a long life of pain and suffering. So just think about that and think about also the overarching principle that God blesses the humble, those willing to serve in whatever capacity he decides. The Bible, think about it this way. The Bible doesn't say well done, good and faithful servant, because you are faithful in all these decidedly huge responsibilities, etc., etc. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, because you are faithful in the little things. Do you understand? If God said, honestly, I don't know anybody that's ever been called to do this, but if God said, go outside with a little, um, what do you call it? Is it a sieve or something like that? A little sifter thing? Go out and sift the driveway for the next 20 years of your life, and that'll bring glory to me. Then you should go out there and sift the driveway. And we'll all point at you from the window and laugh and go, ha, ha, you got to sift the driveway, right? Because <laughs> we're immature idiots, right? And then we have to go back and read 1 Corinthians 12 again. So you, des- you, you deserve more honor, frankly. But people don't think that way. They always think in human terms. Uh, I want to be the guy on stage. I want this gift, or I want to be the one with this gift or that gift. Not unless God calls you to it. So the Bible says, because you are faithful in all the little things, which means, as I've taught you all in the past, 
God's looking for faithfulness. Quality, not quantity, per se. If there is even such a thing, I mean, those are human terms. I, I'm almost hesitant to use those terms, quality and quantity, because I believe that if you, if you serve with quality, there will be quantity in godly ways that you know nothing about. Who do you know who's driving by out there while you're sifting rocks? Who do you know? How, how do you know? That person could go out and say, oh, man, everybody needs to go to North Christian Church. I don't know why, but, you know, they're out there sifting rocks with spaghetti strangers or whatever. I don't know. How do you know what, what quality and quantity is in the first place? You're, you're supposed to be humble. and You're supposed to obey. So he's looking. Think about it. He's looking for obedience. This is going to get, this might get lost on a few of you, but hang in there. He's looking for obedience through faith that he is given. Let me say that again. He's looking for obedience through faith that he has given. Remember, God gives each a measure of faith. Not faith, quote unquote, that man has placed upon himself in order to fulfill some role in life. Let me say it all again. He's looking for obedience through faith that he has given. Faith that he has given. Not, quote, faith that man has placed upon himself in order to fulfill some role in life. In fact, as we've been taught, God will bless the humble and curse the arrogant. So, if a person attempts to self-appoint themselves to some spiritual gift, be it pastor or otherwise, they will be the cause for discipline and suffering, not blessing. How that comes, I don't know. could come in a variety of ways. But God's not going to bless that. So, as I taught the pastors in India, the key point is understanding your calling, not trying to fulfill a litany of requirements even to prove to others that you have it. True pastors have the ability to discern the shepherd's heart and others. You have to trust me on this one. In any case, additionally, the pastor must have proper expectations about his life. Go to uh, 1 Timothy 6-7. With all of that in tow, know also that the pastor must have proper expectations about his life. 1 Timothy 6-7. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves excuse me, with many griefs up here on the board regarding the love of money. A pastor must show his congregation that money is not the issue in the ministry and that money ought never be anyone's motivation, even if they are working for food, to become a pastor. In other words, you don't just choose to be a pastor because you think it's a, 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 an avenue to make money. Verse 11, but flee from these things. 
you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testifies the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Up here on the board. So the pastor's example, he must remember at all times that the sheep are commanded to submit to his authority and even imitate his faith. He must never take his commission lightly, for if he does, he may be the cause for stumbling in others. This is a big deal. Like, it's a big calling. And that's good for everybody to know. He must remember at all times that the sheep are commanded to submit to his authority and even imitate his faith. That's a big responsibility. Here's what the Bible has to say about those commands of the sheep towards the under-shepherds. We saw this in the last um, lesson. Go to Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7. Almost out of time. Thank God my voice is on its last leg. Hebrews 13, 7. In other words, you know, there's two different approaches, and then I suppose there's some continuum between them. When, when a pastor reads Hebrews 13, 7, there's two approaches. Either it's, ooh, this means you guys got to obey me. And there's, oh, they got to obey me? Do you understand the difference? There's a huge difference. There's one that's a sense of responsibility, and there's one that's a sense of like a power grab. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct imitate their faith. Well, I know that that command exists in the Bible for you. And I don't want to mess you up. I'm certainly not perfect. God knows I'm not. I know I'm not. But I don't want to contribute to any of the delinquency. You're bad enough. <laughs> Look at verse 17. Right? Look at verse... I'm serious. I don't, want to, I don't want to contribute to any delinquency. I want to inspire, if anything, if possible... Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So again, this, you know, people look at things different ways. Up here on the board, the greatest example a pastor can ever hope to be is a servant of Christ. We started off with he must be loving. Above all, he must be loving. But what's the fruit of that? To serve. The greatest example of passing and ever hope to be is as a servant of Christ, possessing Christ's heart for others and his love for his sheep. Go to Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45. I mean, they have to be a servant. Just think about that. If they don't have a servant's heart, then they certainly do not love the sheep. 
the greatest example of pastor I can ever hope to be is as a servant of Christ, possessing Christ's heart for others and his love for his sheep, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to lay down his life, to bear his cross. That's the great shepherd. And who do you think, with ubiquitous, all-knowing wisdom, who do you think the great shepherd, the master, is going to hire as under-shepherds? Someone with the consistency to serve. Someone that has that same desire, that same love to serve others, to lay down their lives for others. That's who he's going to hire. So anybody that doesn't fall into that bucket is a false pastor. Now I'll just close with this. Every pastor is a sheep first. Remember that. Every pastor has an example to follow. That is Jesus himself. Jesus served. He laid down his life for others. This ought to be the example a pastor gives his own congregation. Again, every pastor is a sheep first. Every pastor has an example to follow, Christ himself. Jesus served, laid down his life for others. This ought to be the example that a pastor gives his own congregation, to love and to lay down his life for all of you. Amen? Let's bow heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word and setting us free and showing us truth. Father, we pray for those that are still struggling in the faith that in some way, somehow, through delegated authority, through spiritual gifts as they flow from one to another through our faith, that we might all be examples to others, that we might all be lights on a hill to bring to you through your Son new believers, individuals that have changed. What a wonderful calling this is, Father. We just ask for perseverance and tenacity in doing so. And we just ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.